0: For 50% off your delicious hassle free meals.
1: Hello, my name is Robert Baer. I'd like to uh, spend the next uh, hour with you or so uh, telling you about my near death experience, things that I went through. First of all, just to give you a little uh, brief introduction. I am one of the co-founders of spiritual awakenings international which is an organization that's now spread to 75 countries vice president of that organization i've had quite a background uh, in business was an international business consultant i've been a university professor i have had time as a general manager or city manager or community manager I've been a tribal administrator of a Native American nation, and I was a 23-year veteran of a police department that I retired from. This is going to be my story because my life has changed drastically since I experienced my NDEs. I want to set the tone because what I say is my interpretation of what I experienced. And I'm no different than Christopher Columbus or Marco Polo or Mark Twain in that they had no pictures, they had no videos. What they experienced, they came back and they reported to people. And that's how they got their message out. And where I've been and where those of us that have had near-death experiences have gone, There's no videos. There's no cameras. It's just our account of what we remember. So I'm going to share that with you. I was a policeman, and I was uh, very black and white and probably very strict and super conservative. And that was just part of the makeup. That's how I conducted myself, and that's how I interacted with those that I worked with and those that I had dealings with law enforcement, and when I retired from, it was the California Highway Patrol, when I retired from that organization, I began doing other things that gave me a lot of power. Not only did I have power when I was a policeman, but uh, if you're a university professor, you have power. If you're a city manager or general manager, you have power, and you do things that affect people's lives. and. I'm bringing that up because as I talk about my near death experience, I think you're going to see what I'm referring to. In 2008, I was at home and I received a call from an old police colleague of mine. We would talk uh, periodically. And you know, you got a really good friend when you can pick up a phone and talk to that person. And it's like the conversation never ended. Could be you hadn't talked to them. In six months or a year. But when he called me, it was really good to hear him and hear from him. And we'd worked together in the 1960s as policemen. As we were talking and catching up with each other, he stopped me for a moment and he said, Robert, I feel compelled to ask you something. And I said, What's that? And he said, Are you right with the Lord? And I said, what are you talking about? And he goes, I just feel compelled to ask you. And I said, well, I I think I am. And I didn't think about it any more than after, after we had our little brief discussion about it. But this was in 2008. And towards the end of 2008, I was in bed one night. And I woke up. And at the foot of my bed was my mother she had passed away in 2005 and she was beautiful she looked like she did when i was a little boy and she spoke to me and i don't know what language i think it was telepathic i don't know but i heard every word that was meant for me to hear she told me that i was going to die to get my affairs in order and to handle all my personal things and then she just disappeared. And I was so mad at myself, because there she was. And I should have told her how much I loved her, and how much I missed her. And I missed that opportunity. But I just, I was in a pool of sweat. I got up, I couldn't sleep anymore. I called my father. He was still alive at the time and told him what had happened. And of course, he wanted to know if She'd asked about him, and I I remember telling him how, how she looked so young, and he looked beautiful. Well, a few months passed, and I had a full physical where you have uh, your blood test, urine tests, and you have treadmill-type thing. And I passed it with flying colors, and I have to admit that when I was d- taking the test, I actually thought about what my mother had said to me. And so I kind of thought, well, just let it be for now. And shortly after that, my friend that had called me and asked me if I was right with the Lord, my old police friend, he passed away. And I was really sad. Uh, I went down to California and. I participated in his celebration of life, kind of did a little eulogy about our time together and in the 60s and up until he had passed. And uh, I went home and I was preparing to go on a trip to Arizona. And every year in the spring, I went to Arizona to see my son and his family Uh, My son was a high school football, baseball, basketball coach and a history teacher and he had like a spring break and it was during the same time that all the spring training games were going on so I used to go down and we'd spend time together going to the ball games and I got to be with my granddaughters and it it was a lot of fun. And I went down there and just before I went down there, I woke up in the middle of the night again, and my friend that had died, my police friend, was at the foot of my bed. Almost exactly the same way my mother presented herself to me. And he looked young, he just looked at me, and he said, I'm gonna bring you through the light. And I don't know whether we talked in words or telepathically I think it was telepathically I asked him what are you talking about and he said I have to leave now I want to visit my grandchildren in Sacramento he just disappeared well the same thing happened to me again where I, I couldn't sleep and it was just this kind of eerie but I made a couple phone calls and I found out that his grandchildren did live in Sacramento something that I didn't know. I had just had that full physical and just kind of put it out of the back of my mind and uh, and eventually I'd gone to, I went to Phoenix, Arizona and this was in March of 2009 and it was really hot there for that time of year. It was like a hundred degrees or close to it every day and we were we were going to ball games usually two a day and I just didn't feel well, and I'm from a coastal climate in Oregon. I'm, I live in the, the Oregon coast, and I'm pretty used to a cooler climate, and I kind of thought it was just, I just never adjusted to the heat, um, and it just bothered me, I just, but I kept getting sicker and sicker, or feeling sicker and sicker, and I was actually looking forward to getting on the plane and going back to Oregon where the cooler weather was so the day came for me to go and this was March 22nd by the way my birthday is March 21st the day after my birthday and my son dropped me off at the airport and we said our goodbyes and I got in the airport and I looked at this huge long line TSA line and I thought how am I gonna do this I didn't feel well and I made it through the line and uh, once I got through I went to a little convenience store and bought some aspirins. It's probably a good thing I did. I took the aspirins and uh, went and to the area where, where the gate where the plane is, boarded the plane, and as I was putting stuff in the overhead bin, my things, I dropped dead of a massive heart attack. I was lucky because on the plane were a couple of two off-duty firemen from the Pacific Northwest and there was also a doctor on the plane and they knew how to work uh, a defibrillator and do cpr and i don't remember anything about that because i gravitated into a light and i remember seeing these colors colors that don't exist in this on earth like the colors that are behind me none of them were what i saw it was absolutely beautiful and it was warm. And there was somebody with me. There may have been more than one person with me or one soul. I don't know. I like to think it was my friend because if he told me he was going to do something, he would do it. And he did say that he was gonna bring me through the light and there, I mean, it was light. And I gravitated up with him. And I ended up in a situation where I wasn't in an auditorium, but it was kind of like an auditorium. I don't know how to explain it. There were like I knew they were people or souls all around me, but I didn't pay much attention to it because there was right in front of me was a higher power, and I could not look at the higher power. It was so humbling. And I don't know how it was said to me or conveyed to me. I think it was telepathically. But I was asked what what good I'd done in my life. And the next thing I know, I was drawn to the left. And I watched a life review, a total review of my life from the time I was conceived until the time I died. And I remember telling my father about this because my father was still alive uh, when this happened. And I was telling him about it. And I was telling him about seeing him and my mother by an old Chevrolet. And he says, well, were you in the vision? And I said, no. He says, well, you just remember us? And I said, yes, I did. He said, what did your mother have on? And I said, she had a, like a plaid type skirt and looked like a sweater. And I said, you were standing next to her and I remember my mom was smiling and uh, there was an old Chevrolet. I said, I remember the Chevrolet uh, because, you know, as a policeman, I look at cars all, all the time, and I noticed it. He said, wait a minute. And he went to some box that, that had a bunch of pictures in it, and he pulled out this picture, and he showed this picture of him and my mother, and they were in front of a Chevrolet. And he goes, is this one? you saw? I said, that's exactly what I saw. He says, this is one of the best days of your mother's life. I said, what are you talking about? He goes, that was the day we had just left the doctor's office. And that was the day she found out she was pregnant with you. And I asked her to marry me. And we went and got married. And I said, I said, wait a minute. I said, Are "You telling me that she was pregnant with me when when you guys got married?" He goes, "Yes," and uh, we were kind of laughing about that. He said, "My my mother would kill him if uh, you know if he'd ever mentioned that when she was alive." And I said, "I said that's okay, Dad. And, you know, you know they were married for fifty something years um, before she died, so that's fine." But I started to watch my life as a as a young boy and i had a stuttering problem and i had two my grandfathers both died before i was born but my grandmothers were alive and they were wonderful people i mean there was one that took it upon herself to try and help me through i had a stuttering problem and she tried to help me and and I would spend a lot of time with her, um, and this was before televisions were big. I mean, we used to listen to the radio, but and she would play records. They were the old type, I think the six, thirty-three and a third or whatever. The, I forget. She would play records, and and we would listen to them, and we listened to the radio. And I'd spend the night with her a few times, and and I remember I used to ask her all the time about. Buffalo Bill's Wild West show, because she had seen it as a little girl. And she would tell me about it. And the next thing I know, half hour later, I'd ask her about it again. And she said, Robert, I just told you this story. But then she would tell it to me all over again. She was really a neat lady. And I remember like, I'd sleep in the bed with her. She only had one bed and it was, I remember listening to her snore and her, the smell. And when I was going through my life review, the smell and the sounds all came back. And what amazed me was that not only could I feel what happened to me, experience that all over again, but the people that I was actually engaged with or dealing with, I could sense what they thought and what they felt. And... And I'm going to tell you, it wasn't good a lot of times, especially as a policeman, as a boss, as a general manager, or even as a professor when you're grading people. It was very uncomfortable to watch this unfold. And I saw my grandmother. I saw my other grandmother. And she was um, like almost blind and she had cataracts and today she probably wouldn't be blind because of the types of surgery they have now but my father built a home behind our home and uh, it was my mother's mother and moved her in and we kind of took care of her all the time Uh, my mother made a chore list and like I did all the shopping for her and we did a lot of different things and my sisters would do the same and and she would come eat with us and it was a great life. And (laughs) it was phenomenal to watch the interactions and the life lessons I had learned. And when I was about probably four or five years old, our family we used to go on Saturday we'd go to uh, downtown San Jose and my parents would go shopping my dad was in construction and and Saturdays was shopping day so they'd load everybody up in a station wagon and there was no seat belts we'd, we'd be crawling all over each other and, and fighting for the back seat or whatever it was and we went into a store one time and I already knew how to work my parents. I knew if, if I asked my father for something, I'd probably get it, and if I asked my mother, I probably wouldn't get it. She was like from an Irish Catholic uh, background, and uh, she was really great to me, but it was hard to get her to to say yes to anything. <laughs> and I saw these baseball cards. It was a nickel a pack, and I asked my father if I could get the baseball cards and my mother heard me asking and my father looked at my mother and he said, well, ask your mother, that's what the dynamics of our family. So uh, I asked my mother, I knew she was going to say no and she goes, no. So anyways, I stole the cards and when we got home, I was in my bedroom and I was out opening the those baseball cards and had a little stick of hard gum in the in the cards and package and I pulled that out. I just popped that in my mouth and my mother opened the door and she goes, Robert, what do you have there? And I mean, I got <laughs> I got in so much trouble. My parents loaded me up in the car. My mother made a, a big, a big scene about this. We went back to the store and I had to take the baseball cards and what was left of the chewing gum and put them in a wrapper and they asked to speak to the store manager and he came out and and my mother said, our son stole these cards from you and she just went off in in a tirade about how it was unacceptable in our family and he could call the police if he wanted she didn't care what what the outcome was and, and i could read this guy's mind his mind was like this is a f- five-year-old kid now i don't want to <laughs> call the police on him he finally just says just give me a nickel so my dad gave him a nickel and everything was fine with a store owner and we went back home and i was grounded for i don't know how long but I was telling my dad that story and he was kind of laughing about it and I told him I said you know dad I said you and mom did your job as a parents that had a profound effect on my life I thanked him for it and uh, I wouldn't have thanked them <laughs> at the time but they really by disciplining me the way they did it was good for me and my development and so I was watching these things unfold and I played sports and I was a pretty good ball player and I was—I um, could throw real hard and I would lose my temper sometimes or maybe somebody would come up and I would throw at them actually purposely sometimes if, if they would crowd the plate, for example, when I was pitching. I just didn't like what I saw in my behavior. Actually, I was very embarrassed by it, but um, it was very humbling. I, I remember playing sports at one time. I, I was playing in the in, in the outfield, and somebody hit a fly ball, and I just ran and ran and ran. And I stuck my my hand out with my glove my glove hand out. And the ball actually ended up in the in my glove, and I went on the ground, tumbled around, and everybody was cheering. And as I came in, I could I could see my dad just saying, "That's my son! That's my son!" It was just it was really neat because I, I didn't know he had done that. I got to live all that all over again. And I had a, a neighbor that was a young he was a, he was a hemophiliac. His blood didn't clot. And we would play sports, all my friends and I, but on, especially on rainy days, I'd go over to to see him. And, and we would play board games like uh, Monopoly and Stratego and games like that. And his mother would make me, make each of us a glass of Kool-Aid. And she had like a, just a special pack of cherry Kool-Aid for me. And we'd make a glass and just put some sugar in it. And I remember tasting that as I was watching my life review, and it tasted just like it did when I was a young kid. And when I was watching this unfold, I heard a voice from out, for lack of a better term, I'll call it the audience, that said, you were my best friend. And I was telling my father about this also and my father goes you know Paul's father came by in the late 80s and told me that Paul had died and I said maybe I didn't tell you and I said no you didn't but I was living in another part of the state at the time so And and he told me that Paul had um, uh, needed a transfusion when he had a bleeding episode. And he contacted, or contracted AIDS from the transfusion. And he died of AIDS. And my father goes, I bet that was Paul. And I said, I think it was. Another thing that happened, which I talk about periodically, because I've done a lot of these talks, I had a situation where I used to uh, double date with my sister and her boyfriend. In fact, I had to do it. My father and mother insisted on it if my sister wanted to go out, Catholic household. Uh, And uh, I used to ask this uh, this one girl to go with me. We went on quite a few dates like that. I was working on my car. And believe me, teenagers in that time period, at least the boys, at least the area that I grew up in, our cars were it's pretty much everything. <laughs> we took a lot of pride in them, and we used to go cruising, and we had auto lab in high school, so we'd work on them. And she came and asked me if I would go to, or if I would take her to the Coconut Grove to a dance. There was a band that was going to be there. And I told her, um, well, I was going to go cruising with my friends. And, and she goes, well, can I go with you? And I said, uh, no, we don't want any girls with us. And she got all upset and left. And then she came back and had a letter and kind of threw it at me. And I picked it up and she stormed off. And that night... She went with a couple other people that, that we knew and got in a, a, an accident on Graham Hill Road in the Santa Cruz area. Three of the people in the car died. She was one of them. And it was really a sad thing. I mean, but when I was looking at this part of my life review, I heard a voice saying, "You never opened my letter." And I knew exactly who that was. So I continued to watch myself develop and go on through life. And I I had quite a few experiences. And some of the good ones were like when I met somebody and, and you fall in love, you get to feel that all over again. And it was just wonderful. I got to experience that all over again. But the hardest thing I had to deal with, and which I still have a hard time dealing with it now, is betrayal. And it's just something that's, it's all out there. Where I was, there's nothing but the truth. That's all it is, is truth. And I don't know if anybody in the audience that's listening to this has ever been through a divorce. Sometimes they're very confrontational. And I had one of those types of divorces and uh, it was so bad that um, I just didn't speak to my ex-wife for a long time, years. And uh, we had a daughter that, she's an attorney now, uh, but she had a situation where um, she had to have surgery for a, it was for a cancer situation. I drove up to where the hospital was, and her mother and I were both in the waiting room together. And this was after I had my near-death experiences. I was sitting in the room and I made the comment. I said, you know, we haven't talked talked for a long time and things were kind of ugly between us. And I said, we have a daughter that's probably gonna need both of us. Why don't we just bury the hatchet, make the ba- the best of this situation uh, for her? We agreed to do that, and I asked her. I said, "You know, I want to ask you something, and if you want to tell me that, that's fine. If you don't, it's your it's your life." And I told her about some of the betrayal I saw, and she admitted to it. What I had seen in my life review actually happen. All the betrayal, not just with her, but I mean it could be betrayal from the people you work with or, or people that you care about, you thought they were your friends. Maybe they did it intentionally or maybe not, but all that would be thrown right at you when you're in my life review. And I have had a really hard time dealing with that because you know everything. And um, so that was hard to deal with and my police career was one that i was a santa cruz city policeman for a year and then i left to to join the california highway patrol uh, i paid quite a bit of more money and at the time this was back in the 60s i um, went to the academy and uh, from the academy, I was assigned to the South Los Angeles area, which is also is, uh, incorporates the Watts area of Los Angeles. And this was right after the riots. And actually, in, in essence, they were still kind of going on. It was a um, kind of like being assigned to a war zone. Probably wasn't a good place for a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, person to be. I'm being honest. I kind of stood out. But I, I did my assignment. It wasn't, it wasn't unusual to hear gunfire at night. And it wasn't unusual either to make a stop on somebody and maybe they would take you uh, into an alley area behind an apartment building. And, and one night uh, this happened. I was working with another guy, and we were arresting somebody for a DUI, driving under the influence. And it wasn't uncommon to to see rifles pointing at you from from the buildings, from the balconies and stuff. It was kind of eerie. Heard some gunshots go off. And I told my partner, I said, these are close. And he goes, yes, they are. Next thing I know, I saw this guy running towards me with a rifle in his hand, and I yelled at him to halt, he didn't stop, he came ahead and right for us. I didn't draw down on him and I I don't know why but my instinct kicked in and he came up to us and he said that he'd just been robbed and he'd fired some warning shots and I don't think he realizes how close he was to having something horrible happen to him from either me or my partner. but. When I saw this part in my life review, I heard a voice say, thank you for not shooting me. I think it was this guy. And all these things happen. When I was in high school, I'm bringing this up for a reason. When I was in high school and I played baseball in my freshman year. And they actually put me on the varsity team. And uh, I was taking a shower after practice one day. And one of the persons on the baseball team, he grabbed me as I was in the shower, totally naked, took me out and threw me out the door and locked the door. And in the area that I was at was between the boys' area and the girls' area. And there was a swimming pool in the middle. And the girls' swimming team was doing a practicing at the time and everybody was laughing at me because I was out there totally naked pounding on the door and the women's swim coach came up to me and gave me a towel and helped me to get back in there and this guy bullied me the entire time I was my freshman year and I'm gonna accelerate my time on the highway patrol because I don't want to take up any more time on it. But one of the last nights that I worked for the highway patrol, I was a shift supervisor or watch commander, whatever you want to call it. And it was like a little after two o'clock in the morning. And I decided to get out of the office and take a drive down the freeway. When I did, I saw this Thunderbird kind of weaving around. And I thought, this guy's DUI driving under the influence. So when you're a shift supervisor they usually didn't like you to be tied up at the jail or doing anything. Uh, They wanted you available in case something major happened. So I radioed an adjacent beat unit that I was about to make a stop and gave my location. I pulled this guy over. I walked up to the car and asked this guy for his identification. Kind of looked familiar. But when he gave me his identification, I had him step out of the car, and we went over to the shoulder area on the freeway. All of a sudden, I thought, this couldn't be. And I looked at his driver's license. This was the guy that had thrown me out from the shower out into the, um, locked me out, where I was in the swimming pool area, where all the women, where all the girls were. The bully. And it's like karma the beat unit showed up and i looked at them and i said you know something i'm going to do this one myself I ended up hooking the guy up for dui never told him who i was he asked me a few times "Why you look familiar who are you i didn't talk to him at all about what had happened in the past but when he was in the back the back seat of my car and he was crying and carrying on about going to lose his wife and his marriage over this and so on and so forth. I just, <laughs> it was a bizarre set of circumstances. But uh, it's, this actually happened. It was one of my last days on the job. So, kind of like karma. I was watching all these things happen in my life review and that something was kind of fidgeting over on the right I still couldn't look at the higher power, I couldn't look at it, in fact, I was like trembled, but I looked over to the right and there was my dog, Scooter, that died in 2001. I could not believe I saw her then, I did not know that dogs went to where the afterlife is, I didn't even know about the afterlife, but there she was and she was so happy to see me she couldn't come to me. But it was so good to see her and she was so happy. And I kept looking at my life review. And I saw myself just in all these different circumstances. and. I don't know how this happened, but you know, I saw the birth of my children. I got to live all these wonderful moments and all the sad moments, but I ended up back in my body in a hospital bed in, in the emergency room. And I was revived. And I found out later on that I'd been deceased at least 45 minutes they revived me and a short time later i passed away again and i was deceased for about 10 minutes and i was very lucky i had a doctor from pakistan who would not let me die he was a wonderful man the second time i passed away i had a different type of experience i hovered on top of the bed i was watching them work on me i watched the flat line I could see the flatline on the monitor, and I heard them yelling uh, that they lost me again. But my attention was not focused on them. It was focused on another part of the hospital. When I came in on the ambulance, they put my personal things also in the ambulance, and there were a couple of people going through um, my wallet trying to find out who the hell I was. I was watching them and listening to them talk. And policemen, some policemen, and I'm one of them, carries two wallets, one with my regular type citizens type stuff. And then I have another wallet that has my badge and and ID in it. And they were trying to find my insurance cards. And I was trying to tell them where my insurance cards were, because they were in my police wallet. As I was trying to talk to them, I realized they couldn't hear me. And then I thought, I must be dead. And the next thing I know, I was revived again, and that doctor had brought me back. I spent several days in the hospital in intensive care, and all these all these machines hooked up to me, and I was a mess. Um, I was, quite frankly, I was probably trying to stay around long enough for my my daughter to travel to come down to see me, and and my son, and. And the doctor was always coming in and checking on me. And I had told him about what I had seen about them going through my stuff while, while they were working on me in the emergency room and when I died the second time. And he goes, you saw that? And I said, yes, I did. I heard everything they, they said. So he went and he got the people that were working that day, brought them to my bed and said, tell them what you told me. And I did. And when I told him that, They said, that's exactly what we said, word for word. I'm bringing this up for a reason. Because you'll hear people talk about near-death experiences. Some will talk about a life for you. Some will talk about uh, hovering over their body. Some may talk about different things. But here again, there's no cameras. There's no videos. You're like Marco Polo or... Mark Twain or Christopher Columbus where you experience something new and you try and tell people about it and all they have is your word about it I had two different types of near death experiences on the same day and if you hear this from somebody else where they talk about hovering over the bed or seeing something there's more than one type and I had gone through a lot of I spent a lot of time in the hospital and all I wanted to do was go home. I wanted to go back to Oregon. The doctor didn't want me to go back to Oregon. I'd been dead for over 45 minutes once and 10 minutes another time and he said I, I needed another surgery and I said I just want to go home. Finally he arranged to have a colleague in Oregon or somebody new in Oregon do the next surgery and he told me he said if I put you on a plane as soon as you get to Oregon, you're going to have to go in and get that surgery done. And I, I said, I promise you I'll do it. So I did. I don't know how I made it on that flight, but I did. I made it all the way home to Oregon. And then I went to the hospital and had the next surgery. And I was in a surgery recovery room. It was kind of like lapsing back and forth between being coherent and and kind of waking up from the anesthesia and everything that I had and I could hear the rain outside it was like raining sideways in Oregon the the wind was blowing I could hear it on the window and I could even hear the wind the windows were off to my right so I was looking over there and then I looked over to my left and there's this old nun there and I thought to myself am I dead and I I said am I dead and she goes (laughs) No, you're not dead. You're in recovery. And I I looked at her and I I asked her, I said, what are you doing here? And she goes, I am praying for you. And I thanked her for that. And she says, you're welcome. And we had a little talk. And she goes, I understand you were deceased for a long time. And I said, where did you hear that from? And she goes, it's all over the hospital. She says, you're like Lazarus. And I said, well, I was dead according to the doctor quite a long time. And she goes, do you remember anything from when you were dead? And I said, I do. And she said, "Uh, would you mind talking to me about this? And I said, I don't mind, but I said, not right now. And she goes, that's okay, I can come back later on. I said, that's fine. So she came back and she had told me that she'd been a, a nun or she she said she'd been a sister for her entire adult life and she wanted to know what, what I remembered and she's one of two persons that I told everything to. I'm in the process of writing a book about my experience and I'm going to start the book with being in that recovery room, seeing the nun and telling her the entire story of my near-death experiences I and mean, she was just an awesome person anyways I've come back to life as of today I've had 4,999 extra days of life tomorrow makes 5,000 it's truly a blessing and my life is one that I try and live every day like this is my last day. About the same time I died, Michael Jackson, the rock star, died. He was deceased for about 45 minutes as well. And they took him to see a doctor in uh, Los Angeles. I was reading about this at a hospital in Los Angeles who tried to revive him. And this doctor was renowned for raising the dead and couldn't revive Michael Jackson. I had this doctor from Pakistan who just wouldn't let me die. And I owe a lot to that man. But I've often wondered what Michael Jackson would have given to have had 4,999 additional days of life. That's truly a blessing. Now, some of the things that's happened to me have been unusual. Part of the recovering Uh, process has been trying to adapt to some of the things that have happened to me I don't know if it's my electronic field but there's times where like if I'm around a microwave I'll set it off or maybe store alarms and uh, TSA lines I'll trigger things there my eyesight is something that's kind of unusual I had like 20-90 vision before I was deceased, and since I've been back to life, it's down to 2010. And I just had a check recently. It was still 2010. They, they can't figure out what happened. I don't know, but I'm grateful for it. I don't have night vision. I wear these glasses to read, and I'm looking at a screen, a uh, computer screen right now. So I have them on. I've been so blessed. Uh, in one book, I was one of the topics... Research topic for Deborah Diamond's book, Life After Near Death. And I've been on several shows, like I Survived Beyond the Back. Currently um, on a show on the National Geographic channel. I think it's called Visiting the Beyond. I've been on numerous podcast shows. I think my message has been pretty consistent. Spiritual Awakenings International is something that. Dr. Yvonne Kaysan and I co-founded. We had been, she was president and I was vice president of a group called IANS, which is the International Association of Near-Death Studies. We both resigned from that on the same day and started Spiritual Awakenings International. And I would hope that this audience would go take a look at that website because we have one of the most comprehensive types of information about near-death studies that you could probably find. We're in 75 countries now, both in English and Espanol. We have monthly presentations, which are free. We have sharing circles, which are free, and that's both in English and Espanol. And we have an annual conference that is heavily attended. And I would like to encourage you to Go to our website and maybe check out some of the other persons that we have videoed who have had near-death experiences and other topics that might be of interest to you as viewers in this subject matter. I feel very blessed. I'm very grateful to have this opportunity to have talked to you. I can be reached at www.spiritualawakeningsinternational.org. If you have any questions, please feel free to contact me. I'm going to end this talk at this time. Thank you for your time.